Welcome back to the second part of our three-part series on healthcare worker wellbeing and burnout. In this second part, we have one of our podcast members and Liverpool Emergency Registrar Dr Jack Ashley presenting a very thought-provoking paper by Kendrick et al titled Hospital Staff Report It Is Not Burnout but a normal stress reaction to an uncongenial work environment. Findings from a qualitative study. Thanks, Jack. Uh, So Natalie actually excellently alluded to the topic of this paper in part one of this podcast, that while burnout is an all too prevalent problem for healthcare workers, there are unfortunately a lot of other pieces of the pie. It's depression, anxiety, suicidal ideation, stress, a lot of other issues that kind of come under the same umbrella, but are distinct entities in their own right. So I want to start with looking at the ICD-11 definition of burnout that this paper leads on. Now it's defined as a syndrome conceptualized as resulting from chronic workplace stress that has not been successfully managed. It is characterized by three dimensions, One, feelings of energy depletion or exhaustion. Two, increased mental distance from one's job or feelings of negativism or cynicism related to one's job. And three, a sense of ineffectiveness and lack of accomplishment. Burnout refers specifically to phenomena in the occupational context and should not be applied to describe experiences in other areas of life. So I think, at least in my experience, the culture around well-being in medicine has started to shift and people aren't too afraid to talk about the problem which is such an important place to start. But I've certainly noticed that the word burnout has become very commonplace in our vocabulary. But when we start looking to the literature for evidence-based solutions, the problem needs to be relatively well-defined to start with. The premise of this paper is that while there is overlap between burnout and uncongenial stress, they are still distinct issues that require distinct solutions. So what these authors have done that I didn't really see replicated elsewhere in the literature is really trying to confound for stress, depression and anxiety and isolate the issue of burnout. So this paper is a qualitative study that aimed to explore perceptions of self-reported stress and burnout in healthcare professionals and discover how these correlated to clinical standard definitions, such as in the ICD-11 and Maslach's burnout inventory. So summary of this paper, data was collected via a series of semi-structured interviews with open-ended questions. The participants were purposefully sampled with individuals from the emergency, surgery and psychiatry departments in two urban hospitals in a single Australian public health service targeted by email, and then they were encouraged to tell their co-workers about the study for further recruitment. Interviews were ultimately conducted among 72 health professionals, including doctors, nurses, allied health professionals, admin and clerical staff. The data was then analysed using deductive theme analysis to identify themes and trends in the interview responses. In terms of results, a total of 72 participants were interviewed with 35 from psychiatry, seven from surgery, 22 from emergency, and eight from other categories. And they also define other categories as those working across multiple departments. The first major conclusion of the analysis was that the term burnout is largely misunderstood and frequently used to describe phenomena more appropriately labeled chronic stress or anxiety or long-term physical fatigue, all resulting from an uncongenial work environment. While many individuals use the term burnout, when they're asked to describe what burnout meant to them, only a small number of participants describe burnout as the end stage of chronic stress that is essential to the definition by Maslach and the ICD-11. Turned out that 68 out of the 72 participants' experience of burnout were in fact not consistent with clinical indicators of burnout. 
However, and maybe even more importantly than that, the majority of participants discussed experience of stress, anxiety, and burnout altogether. And very few individuals described neither workplace stress, anxiety, or burnout. Now, interestingly, the second major conclusion of the paper was that participants who appeared to experience the most stress in the workplace were staff in the middle of the clinical hierarchy. So they weren't too junior and they weren't too senior, such as your registrar doctors and your registered nurses. The authors proposed that this was because their role carried a large amount of responsibility, but with less autonomy than their senior colleagues. The main theme identified was staff feeling stressed that they were not able to provide what they believed was optimal patient care due to systemic issues, such as understaffing, lack of resources, and time pressure. I think that's something, again, that was alluded to in part one. So to conclude, this paper may seem like it's trying to say none of you are actually burnt out, but I think instead it's actually highlighting two very important issues. The misuse of the term burnout, which, if anything, muddies the waters of the problem, making it harder to define, identify, and ultimately address. I think that has public health and organisational implications, but I don't really think it has individual applications. If a coworker or friend of yours is telling you they are burnt out, it doesn't really matter if they have ICD-11-defined burnout or workplace-related stress, etc. What they need is your support. And the second issue, that regardless of whether it is clinically defined burnout or not, most of the patient-facing healthcare workers are experiencing stress or anxiety, if not burnout, as a consequence of uncongenial work environments, and that we ultimately need to be working towards systemic solutions to address this. Thanks, Jack. I feel like that was an incredibly well-summarised study, and I really like the way you summarised at the end by kind of bringing out some of what I think are the most important parts in that paper, which really are, I guess, looking at whether or not burnout is being defined properly in our workplace and you know, kind of making sure that we don't diminish some of the other issues that are at hand. Before kind of opening up the floor, I was wondering whether you'd be happy to talk about the strengths and weaknesses of this paper? Absolutely. So I think some of the strengths of this paper, first and foremost, was quite a novel approach to the issue of burnout and stress in healthcare workers by using this qualitative study design. I think the qualitative analysis was quite appropriate in teasing out these concepts of burnout and stress, which have quite a high degree of overlap that quantitative studies have struggled to identify in the past. I like that it was performed in an Australian hospital, making it more applicable to our own practice. Uh, and finally, while it seems like it may have been a small N, the authors addressed this in the discussion, saying that 72 participants was actually more than sufficient to achieve theme saturation, and there was actually quite a high-powered qualitative study. In terms of weaknesses, the main one that stood out for me was sample bias. The paper ultimately relied on people to volunteer to participate. And it seems intuitive to me that people who are burnt out are less likely to engage especially for what is a very involved, open-ended interview that averaged 40 minutes in duration. Also, people who are already overwhelmed with very busy workloads are less likely to respond. And I think that's something we all agree with. So I wonder if that also accounted for the decreased amount of burnout compared to other literature, especially noting there were only seven participants from surgery compared to 35 from the psychiatry department, for example. The paper, however, did offer an explanation for that, stating that in the psychiatric and emergency departments, department leaders, such as senior nurse managers, openly endorsed participation to their colleagues, encouraging volunteers to contact the researchers, which, at least at their hospital, wasn't replicated by the surgery department, which may account for the decreased participation there. Thanks, Jack. Now, just opening up to the floor, I'm curious to know what people think about burnout versus kind of chronic workplace stress and whether there really is a 
kind of clinical significance between the two in terms of, you know, how we potentially support people who are burnt out or stressed and how we kind of mitigate against those things developing. Like, I understand what this paper's done, but I'm just wondering from our point of view whether there is any real significance in this distinction. I suspect that maybe it's something of a spectrum and that by definition, if we're saying that burnout is a result of chronic stress, that those indicators of significant workplace stress are still extremely important and that maybe that's a point at which well-placed intervention might actually make a difference and prevent the progression to full-blown burnout. I also wonder though, like what was the point of making such a strong difference? Like, is it to say that other studies are over-reporting burnout because we're including chronic stress as part of that definition erroneously? Or is it actually to say that we're under-measuring because we're only measuring formal burnout and we're not accurately measuring the chronic stress, which I would argue is still really debilitating and still a big risk factor for progression to burnout? The main goal of the paper that the authors identified in their introduction was to identify the issue of burnout as separate to the issues of stress and the issues of anxiety, et cetera, because from a psychological point of view, Natalie, I'm definitely not the expert here. I'll let you speak to that. They mentioned that they require different solutions, but ultimately if they're all from what they've described as an uncongenial work environment. They all need systemic-based solutions anyway. And that's how I would say is that, you know, burnout's a workplace phenomenon and clearly workplace stress. I'm not too clear on that difference there, to be honest. But if it's anxiety, then it's individual. It, you know, that's a clinical diagnosis, whereas burnout's not a clinical diagnosis in this country. Or I believe it is now um, with the ICD-11 and it's been adopted in Scandinavia and other European countries. But in this country, burnout isn't a clinical diagnosis. So it's a systemic workplace issue, whereas anxiety is an individual clinical diagnosis. So yeah, the interventions recommended for that would be different. One more systemic, one more individual based, I guess. I have to admit when I, you know, hear all of this and the discussion around, for me, it just keeps coming back to that moral injury again. Like what underpins all of these problems, and like you say, whether you call it workplace stress or anxiety or yes. burnout, the precipitating factor underneath that is the moral injury, is the fact that clinicians come to work wanting to care. Mm-hmm. They know how to deliver the care. They want to deliver the care, but they're unable to deliver the care that they want for their patients because they're in the waiting room or they can't find a space or, you know, they forget to go back and tell their patient what's going on seven, eight hours later and the patient's left. You know, all of these things, which I think have an impact and unfortunately are things that we can't fix at an individual level. So yes, there are patches, we can cope better, we can do things to make it easier to manage. But the reality is that it requires, and again, I'll talk on it later, but requires being human and actually understanding that the reality is, I think historically, traditionally, we've done the role of a doctor, the role of a clinician is to care for others, and we put our patients first. But actually, paradoxically, that's not helpful. And you know, if we're going to treat people with humanity, and if we're going to be human, all humans are equal. And actually to be a good carer, then the carers also must be well. And so as an organisation, we need to be valuing our staff at all levels, our carers, our patients and their families equally, not one over the other. 
And I think when we do that and work out what it is that makes, you know, we fix things at an organizational level, it allows people to yeah, function better. And so, I mean, I, I know I'm detracting here a little bit, but for me, when I hear all of these different terms, I guess it just constantly pulls me back to the underlying problem, which is people are reporting this moral injury and how it affects people might be slightly different in terms of a diagnosis, but the underlying problem is usually the same. I think that's a good point well made. And I think we'd all be reluctant to condone any definitions that removes that organizational responsibility for their staff's welfare. I think it's too easy to go there, there, you're anxious to deal with your anxiety. So these sound like pretty big issues that we're going to need some pretty big people to solve. And to be honest, I don't have much hope in that. I'm just wondering if anyone has any thoughts on what we can do on a smaller base level. So like, even as we're talking, I'm thinking it's not necessarily a moral injury, but when I do a shift, I may not eat during that shift. And maybe within our department, not necessarily within the organization, we can talk about scheduled breaks, like making sure that during an evening shift at 6.30 p.m., this person goes to eat at 6.30 p.m., this person goes at 8 p.m., this person goes... I think in my head, maybe smaller things that we can do can probably help us a little bit, or maybe even things like tea breaks, which are like mandated for nursing staff while we don't even think we have time to go to the toilet, you know? That's a really good point. I think when we hear the word system solutions, though, or organizational-based solutions, we think of like massive overhauls or shifts in culture. But there are systems-based solutions that can be really simple. Like I always think of one small thing. I would love if our ADs just had more pillows. I think the moral injury I have by having to apologize to a nana that we don't have any pillows over and over every shift is just such a small thing. That's a great example of a systems-based solution that could just improve our workplace the tiniest bit. When you go to the cannula trolley and you find out that, oh, this week we're out of kidney dishes, a real problem being faced at the moment. <laughs> so I will carry everything over and make a mess and just delay me that little bit more and look quite unprofessional to my patients. Those are these system-based solutions that don't have to be massive, but are just beyond what an individual can implement. Yeah. And I, I guess I just also want to, you know, again, with that point of talking about things at an organizational level, I don't want to take away and make it again an us versus them. So it's not us on the floor versus the organization. I think if we are going to have this approach and realize that things need to happen from the top down and from the organization, we also all have to realize that we're all part of the organization and that for things to be fixed, that means we all have to engage and actually collaborate together for these things to work. So it can't be that just, oh, well, I can't fix that problem. So that's an organizational, you know, I think it really does involve us, like you say, finding the small things, the things we can change, but we all have to actually engage with the process if it's going to work. A lot of our focus on well-being and burnout and staff mental health and performance has been around eliminating negative performance impacts. So this staff member is exhausted, it, you know, it is having an impact on their life and their work. Um, we need to bring them back to baseline. I've been thinking a lot about the opposite end of this, which is optimizing performance. And I think that probably a lot of industries don't really think about this that much, but I'm drawn to how sort of performance athletes look at that. The more I think about it, I almost look at our work as a performance sport. You know, you sort of build up to your shift, you go on the day, you're faced with a number of highly variable, highly intense challenges. You have to respond, you know, using whatever preparation you have, whatever knowledge you have, and, you know, whatever fortitude you have to deal with those things, and then you recover. 
And the thing that athletes and those sorts of competitive people have that's, I think, slightly contrary to us is they talk a lot about getting the best out of themselves. And I think maybe we have slightly the opposite frame. So an athlete is optimizing their diet and optimizing their exercise and optimizing their sleep, not because that way you'll be resilient for the horrible shift that you're about to have, but because they're focused on getting every single marginal gain that they possibly can to, you know, excel on the day. I wonder if maybe changing a framework would be something that's potentially beneficial. Well, I think from my perspective, what you're talking about there is is where I was going to go with the interlude, which is the self-compassion around, you know, being well ourselves. And Felicity's touched on that. We need to be well ourselves to provide care for others. So to be the best that we can, we need to input into that. But there is a culture of self-criticism and perfectionism within the environment, the hospital environment. And I think when you look at athletes and you look at corporate, the corporate world as well, you know, they're assigned coaches. This is a new thing that, that what we're doing at Westmead, where there's counseling and well-being coaching is a really new idea. Whereas if you look at corporations, people are assigned coaches just like that, you know, and have been for 20, 30 years. Even the police have to check in with a psychologist or a counsellor regularly. Yet doctors, nurses, they're not doing this to look after themselves. That's where I would go is that it's around compassionate workplace. It's not just self-compassion, compassion for others. It's compassionate leaderships, compassionate rostering, compassion being at the core of everything that we need to invest in the people. Such a balance to strike because there does have to be some personal responsibility taken to in ensuring our own wellness while also not mm. mitigating the responsibility of the organization to provide mm. us a safe working environment. I think some of the notions that we have about the demands placed on us on a shift are actually self-imposed. Like my counselor has asked me, well, why can't you take 10 minutes to drink mm-hmm. water? That's the perfectionism. Absolutely. But, it's, but that is self-imposed. There is no expectation on me, aside from my own, that I couldn't take 10 minutes. But it's been learned, hasn't it? It's self-imposed, but it's also been, you know, learned behavior from others. And it becomes this culture of they're not taking, you know, there's a lot of comparisons. In the space that I'm in, people compare themselves to others all the time. And it's this comparing to others and this harsh criticism, this narrative of so-and-so never takes a break or, you know, I won't take a break. And we come back to that. So I think it is, it's individual, but it's also learned. And maybe there's even superhero sense of pride in that, like a whole shift and I didn't stop once. I try really hard to make my more junior colleagues take breaks. And so particularly on an evening shift, like I will hound each of my team to say, have you gone? Because I won't go until you go. So please go because I'll be cranky if I don't go. That's exactly what I was going to say is uh, one of the more junior registrars here and being a JMO at Westmead, I could definitely say that's a positive part of the culture in Westmead AD. And that's a culture definitely had on shifts working with you where I've been very positively enforced to go have breaks. So that's definitely something that's, I think, and I hope continues to be filtering through. 
And I think that's the responsibility for us as leaders. Like the reality mm. is we can't expect other people to do it. Do you know what I mean? I would never have taken a break as a registrar if my consultant hadn't gone or anything like that. I think we have to explicitly give people permission that I expect you to have a break and I expect you to go and have water. Mm. And, you know, exactly there's going to be a problem if you haven't been rather than the other way around. Maybe we need to be better at modelling that. Modelling it. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, I just have a thought and this is, just a thought, essentially. So just on learned behavior and implementing organizational sort of level changes, I was just thinking about our assessments. So, you know, end of term assessments, which basically, you know, we are assessed on a you know multitude of a few things. So your skills, it's your team leading, your professionalism, communication and things like that. And we never, ever have any... I've I've never seen it unless someone basically mentions it. Anything about how have you been in terms of your well-being? What have you done? So what have you done during the past three months? Although we are assessed for a lot of other things, no one ever asks about these things unless they are interested in that themselves. So, I mean, just being a college trainee, I'm just thinking, sure, this is a newly diagnosed problem and probably it's not yet implemented in a lot of things, but I think that could be a step to at least make it more real to people and just to say we know this problem is out there and we want you to be aware of it. I love I that. Think, yeah, like to pass say. your term, you must complete three mandatory <laughs> well-being activities of your choice. Well, I think it's a great point you brought up. And I think again, I'll put it out there and say that maybe us as facems and consultants probably need to lead that more because the reality is if we look at your end of term, like your in-training assessments. The college does actually have under the domain, I think it's of professionalism. Part of that is protects themselves from, you know, workplace stress, understands, I can't remember the exact terminology, but to do with work. So it is in your professionalism domain, but I agree, we don't discuss it. A lot of you have heard me talk about this a lot, but if you're a social worker or a psychiatrist, psychologist, a counsellor, we can't keep our registration unless we do so many hours of this. We call it clinical supervision, where we, you know, we don't just talk about cases um, and clients, but we talk about how we are in relation to our work. I meet with a group and I meet with one-on-one. I'm really, really very proactive with my clinical supervision and we call each other out on our burnout levels or our well-being and how we our self-care or self-compassion and so on. And, and we can't continue to practice unless we do this. Yet it's not in your infrastructure at all. Yet you're healthcare professional. I think in the same is Ryan saying that it's an individual thing and obviously want to be an organizational thing. Because I will say Felicity did ask me about my well-being in my last assessment. So kudos to Felicity. But yeah, maybe it needs to be organizational. And normalized as well, because otherwise I think if you ask someone specifically about their well-being, it almost seems accusatory. A staged, are you okay conversation, which could land completely badly. Making sure that we're asking and giving the person permission to answer in full as well. I got asked the other day if I'd had any difficulties over the night shift. I was like, actually, yeah, I had this really challenging run-in and it was bothering me a bit. And the person already turned and walked away. <laughs> so I think it's just a good reminder that sometimes there's going to be an answer to that question and making sure we're ready to listen. I think, Laura, what you mentioned there, though, is also really important in terms of just kind of generating discussion around these issues. Because I must say, if someone asked me about my well-being in an end-of-term assessment, I would assume that I had done something wrong or was struggling in a way that 
meant that they were prompting further to try and figure out what the issue was. And I think even sitting here and listening to this discussion and the fact that Felicity, you're frustrated by the way in which we end up having to treat patients because of the systematic issues, like it's actually incredibly relieving as a registrar to sit here and go, I'm not the only one that really struggles with these things and is affected by them because I think we assume that we should cope or that you know if we're not coping there's an issue and so I think even just starting the discussion and raising awareness for this kind of stuff might really help. I was just going to say that comes back to Brené Brown's vulnerable leadership. And I was going to say I mean the reason I ask is I think when you actually step back and look at the situation that we're in I guess I would argue is it reasonable to expect that anyone is completely 100% okay. Honestly, I don't think any of you as trainees should be 100% okay. I would be surprised because, you know, you are dealing with moral injury every single shift. You are dealing with stressful situations. So there's got to be a way to manage and balance that. But I don't think we can expect any of you to just be okay. And I think part of that vulnerable leadership is actually to acknowledge that maybe we're not either. Like we're actually dealing with the same and sure there's this idea that maybe we have increased autonomy, but actually I think sometimes we're more aware of the roadblocks that we're up against trying to institute some of those organizational changes. And so by admitting that maybe we're struggling also, we can make it easier for a trainee to acknowledge that too. I've got a figure here that I thought was really interesting, and that was pulled from the Beyond Blue report into doctors' mental health, and that was 59% of doctors felt that being a patient caused embarrassment for themselves. There you go, for vulnerability. You were the helper. I've had people say to me that they have, at end of turn training assessments, had operations and you know family problems, sickness, illness, hospital admissions, and have actually not told anyone, have not taken a single days of sick leave. They've moved all their shifts around. I mean, that to me is just absolutely mind-blowing that there's this like you say, drive, whatever it is, to I can't be vulnerable, I can't be sick, I can't take time off. We have a huge stigma around this within the hospital and that's one of the reasons why, as you've discussed before, that the programs are opt out rather than opt in to just remove that stigma completely because it's really, it is there. And hopefully maybe discussions like this will also help for anyone listening at home that doesn't have access to that service at the moment. Hopefully discussions like this will help us all realise that it's pretty normal to not cope every day at work when we're working in the environment that we are. We might wrap it up there for this episode, but before we do, Jack, what would be your take-home points for us listeners at home? That Even though this paper identified that burnout might be an overused or might be a misused term, that shouldn't affect us on individual levels. Someone's describing these symptoms or just trying to describe that this is what they're going through, give them your support, give them your help, and that ultimately these are issues that need to be addressed on a systemic basis. Thank you, Jack. That brings us to our second interlude of the month, which will be presented by Dr. Felicity Day. Thanks, Caroline. I guess preparing for this, I've spent a lot of time pondering wellness and what it means to me. And so I'm going to give a bit of a different interlude, which I guess is in theme of that vulnerable leadership. 
I'm going to tell you a bit about, I guess, times in my career and when I think I've struck the balance and also uh, some other times when the balance is tipped. I was going to talk a little bit about moral injury, but I think I'll probably park that for the moment because I think we've had a lot of talk about that in the discussion. But I guess just a couple of things. So, you know, to clarify, moral injury describes that challenge of simultaneously knowing what care patients need, but being unable to provide it due to constraints that are beyond our control. And so, you know, as we mentioned before, access block, the wait times, patients sitting in waiting rooms, unable to access treatment, you know, the list goes on. And I know that's familiar to everyone who's listening. And so we experience this moral injury every shift. And I guess what's the solution? It's not easy, is it? And we've talked about that already a bit today. And I I think the answer lies in that being human and humility and putting people first. But what I mean by that is actually not putting patients first above ourselves. We actually need to recognize the importance of caring for ourselves and valuing our well-being to allow us to, to provide good care for other people. And I think, you know, we really need to be sort of valued and this needs to be something that we look at from an organizational and sort of leadership level down. I guess the other side then I move to, there's lots that we can do to help ourselves cope on a sort of day-to-day basis. And I guess I'll now just give you a bit of an insight into when I've lost the balance and some of the lessons that I've learned along the way. So one of the hardest periods for me so far was actually that transition to consultant life. So when I, I guess I thought, hooray, I'm finally there. I've passed the exam, no more night shifts, things are going to be awesome. And they were for a while, but then, you know, the pressure of the decisions that ended with me going home and wondering, you know, what things I'd missed. And I never really worried about those things as a registrar, second guessing every decision, reliving every resuscitation in my dreams. And then adding to this was the new sort of clinical support portfolios and the roles and responsibilities I'd never done before, you know, including spreadsheets. And eight years later, I'm no better and still can't do them properly. But I guess I found my mind constantly processing tasks for work and I became progressively more and more dysfunctional. And I don't think I recognized it or realized it sort of at the time. Some examples like bad dress habits worsen, like I pick my fingers and nails and used to do that until they would bleed, which is not really a great habit for an emergency doctor. And I guess it all culminated for me in nearly having an accident driving to work, which was potentially could have been a bad one because I was lost in my mind doing my to-do list for the day rather than focusing on my current tasks. And so I guess these are my personal tolls, but I guess as we've talked about today, we all understand that there are lots of associated organisation organizational negative impacts and patient care as well. However, I think now I'm currently reasonably well. So wellness has lots of aspects for me, including, you know, physical, emotional connections and intellectual. So how did I tip the balance back? Uh, Physical health is important to me with regular exercise. I must admit, I have to pay a personal trainer to tell me what to do because I'm lazy and will avoid it at all cost. But, you know, the exercise, the meal planning and preparation really does sort of help with my physical health and well-being. I also began practicing mindfulness exercises and using the app Smiling Mind, which helped me not only relax and improve my sleep, but actually to clear my mind when I was stressed in clinical situations, to focus before difficult meetings. And again, look, I must admit, I've always been quite cynical about meditation and mindfulness. However, I've come to learn that actually it had a definite positive role to play for me. And now I even get my kids involved. So most of my wellness is external to work and it actually comes from connections, my family. As many of you know, I'm married with two beautiful boys who are 11 and seven and they bring me joy every day. And 
I guess I'm bringing them up not only because of the connection, but because actually when I was reflecting about sort of what I've learned and, you know, the skills that keep me well, I actually think I've learned much more from being a parent than I could ever have sort of taught them. So when my son was in preschool, they arranged a meeting for us because they were concerned about how fixed his mindset was. And they introduced us to the growth mindset concept, which is the power of yet. So it's the concept that you believe your intelligence and skills can be improved through your effort and actions, but recognizes that mistakes and setbacks are not only are both necessary in how you grow and learn. And as I read more and more about it, I realized that I too had a fixed mindset and I would argue that most perfectionistic medical professionals do and realized that I actually wished I was taught to have a growth mindset as I grew up. And we've gradually worked on it together as a family using a big life journal as a guide. If it's a new concept to you, I would highly encourage you to read about it. And there's some great TED Talks about it as well, if you just Google growth mindset. My kids and I also read a book together called Have You Filled a Bucket Today? And we've been talking about, you know, the concept of glass half full and empty. And this is a book which talks about the concept of kindness and that everyone in the world walks around with an imaginary bucket And when you're kind to others, you not only fill their imaginary bucket with happiness, it also fills your own. And of course, when you're unkind, then you remove not only from theirs, but also from your own. In terms of connections, I also value my connections at work with both colleagues and patients. And I guess I would just say that human moments are really precious and encourage you to look for those small moments of kindness and human connection, because they often, again, bring me some satisfaction during the shift holding the hand of a scared elderly patient with dementia, sitting in silence for a moment to let a loved one grieve, and even just the actively listening to our patients. And by that, I mean not appearing distracted or looking at a computer and typing. Treat your colleagues with kindness and respect always because it's infectious. We finally come to intellectual well-being and a sense of purpose. As we've talked about, I would like my satisfaction to come from knowing that I bring patients an excellent patient experience in clinical care but that's the moral injury that I experience every day. So what I've learned probably brings me sort of more satisfaction at work is that I'm always learning something new and it's the curiosity that's the key. I try to come to work to remind myself to be curious and if I take at least one teaching moment to spark curiosity in someone else, I know I go home more satisfied. So we have a challenging profession, but a privileged one. We do see lots of horrible things at work, not to mention, as we've mentioned, the moral insult. But we're also shown each shift all the things that we have to be grateful for. So again, with my children, I've learned to teach and practice gratitude with my children. And a quote that I love and that my children now quote back to me all the time is that it's not happy people who are grateful. It's grateful people who are happy. Emergency medicine's not an easy path and there's definitely lots of problems. We definitely don't have all the solutions yet. If I could choose my career all over again, though, I would still choose emergency medicine. Be human, be kind, and it will be better for everyone. And one final lesson I've learnt, it's okay to put yourself first sometimes, and it actually is going to make you better and stronger and more able to care for others. So I would encourage you all to ask yourself, what do I need right now? Thank you for tuning in to the second part of our three-part series on wellbeing and burnout. If you have any questions or anything you would like to share, please contact us at westmeadedjournalclub at gmail.com. Otherwise, look out for the release of the final part of this series coming soon.